morning, everyone. I'd like to share my journey into these verses from Ephesians chapter 5. I have been pondering, particularly verses 31 to 32, where Paul quotes from the book of Genesis, speaking of the two becoming one flesh, and then links it with the great mystery of Christ in the church. I've been reflecting on that passage and that linking for 25 years, prayerfully entering in ever more deeply, and literally there is no end to it. It is indeed a great mystery that gets deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But I'd like to give you a little background to tell you the beginning of my journey into discovering Ephesians chapter 5, and particularly the light that John Paul II sheds on Ephesians 5 in his Theology of the Body. 1988, I was a freshman in college, and my roommate came back to the room on a Friday night very drunk and vomited all over the dorm room. Sorry for the graphic image, but there it is. It's, it's important to the story. I wouldn't give you the detail for no reason. The room smelled so bad, I grabbed my pillow and my blanket. I am, as I'm leaving the room, I'm looking back at my roommate, passed out in a puddle of his own vomit, and I'm beginning seriously to question the philosophy of happiness that I was being taught in college life. Get drunk, lots of sex, this will make you happy. I'm leaving my room thinking, Happiness? Happiness? Go down the room, checking the doors, find one that's open, went into the room, put my pillow and blanket on the floor. This guy comes back to his room, doesn't know I'm there, has a girl with him, proceeds to try to have his way with her. And I remember very clearly, I'll never forget, this weak voice saying, stop, stop. I'd only want to do this if I knew that you loved me. To which he responded, I love you, I love you. Please raise your hand if you think he was telling the truth. And I have to apologize to every woman here and everyone on the planet that I did not get up and kick the living beep out of this guy which is what I should have done. I was so stunned by what was happening, I, 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 was, I froze. That experience haunted me. I don't know exactly what happened, but I know she said stop and he kept going. And at some level, I witnessed a date rape. And I was wrestling, I was wrestling hard. Like, I didn't have faith at the time, but if there was a God, I was angry at him. I said, God, if you exist, you better show me why you gave me these desires because they're getting me and everybody I know into a heck of a lot of trouble. I was wrestling. I said, what is it that can lead a human being to treat another human being as nothing but a thing, an object for his or her own selfish pleasure? And I, I was challenged by this. Okay, I wasn't guilty of, of date rape in the relationship I was in. She was consenting, but was I loving her? I don't know. I don't know. What is love? I had to ask that question. And I remember I'm 19 years old and I told my very attractive, very 
sexually provocative girlfriend, uh, I can't have sex with you anymore because I got to figure this out. I want to know what it means to love. I don't want to just use you. I want to know what it means to love. And she and I had lots of arguments about this over the next two years of our relationship before she finally broke up with me. And one night she finally said, why won't you have sex with me anymore? And we're sitting in her parents' living room. And I said, and this just came bubbling out of me. To my own surprise, I was 20 at the time, 20 years old. This came bubbling out of me. I'll tell you why I don't want to have sex with you anymore. Because I don't want to end up like your dad who goes to a porno shop every Thursday night. That's why. And he's got stacks of penthouse in the bathroom. That's why I don't want to have sex with you. Because I want to figure out what this really is. And she... That was the beginning of my journey into Ephesians 5. Because Ephesians 5 reveals what sex really is. Or more accurately, what sex is really meant to be. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. For what reason? It's like all of human history is suspended right here. Everybody wants to know what the reason is for sex. What reason? What reason, Paul? Tell us, what is the reason God made us this way? That was the cry of my heart in that dorm room in 1988. Why did you make me this way? What is this? For this reason, God has made us male and female and called the two to become one flesh. This is a great mystery. Pause. Do we think of our sexuality as a great mystery? Mystery? There's no mystery. It's just plumbing. It's biology. Whoa, 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 whoa. In the modern world, if we are wearing our science glasses, we will never see the great mystery revealed through human sexuality. Now, thank God for science. Science is a gift from God. We can abuse it, and we often do, but we can use it for great good. Thanks be to God for all science has taught us about our bodies as a biological organism. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But if we reduce the human body to something merely biological, we will miss altogether the theological meaning and significance of the body. To our great detriment, we have been, sorry, I'm thinking of an 80s song. We've been blinded by science. She blinded me with science. We've been blinded by science to the theological meaning of the body. Forgive me, I quote from my 80s catalog quite a bit. I never, never realized, listening to all that stuff on the radio, top 40 music as a teenager, that I would actually, later in life, be giving theology talks, drawing from this music. But here we go. Anybody remember this Peter Gabriel song? In your eyes, the light, the heat. In your eyes, I am complete. In your eyes. Listen to these lyrics. Listen to these lyrics. In your eyes, 
I see the doorway to a thousand churches. That's a man who is experiencing in that moment the theology of that woman's body. He sees her just as Paul says we should see woman, as image of the church. In your eyes, I see the doorway to a thousand churches. Now let's reduce that song to something merely biological. It would go like this. In your eyes, the cornea. In your eyes, the retina. In your eyes, I see the lines of a thousand bloodshot blood vessels. <laughs> a student of mine once shouted out in the middle of one of my courses, Christopher, stop it, you're ruining the song. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is what happens when we reduce the human body to something merely biological. We ruin the song. What song? The Bible begins with the marriage. The marriage of man and woman in an earthly paradise. It ends with the marriage of Christ and the church in a heavenly paradise. You know what St. Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 5? He's bringing these two bookends together to meet in the middle. He's linking those two bookends together. And where are we? Literally, if we bring this bookend of the Bible and this bookend of the Bible together in the middle of the Bible, where are we? What's smack dab in the middle of the Bible? The song of all songs. The great erotic love poetry of Scripture. Do you know the Christian saints and mystics over the centuries have written more commentaries on the Song of Songs than any other book in the Bible? The Christian saints throughout history have written more commentaries on this erotic biblical love poetry than on the Gospels or the letters of Paul. What do the Christian saints throughout history know about this book that's right in the middle of the Bible? They know this is God's eternal love song transposed into a human key so that we mere mortals can sing it. This erotic love poetry is God's eternal love song transposed into a human key so that we can sing it. And when we reduce the human body to something merely biological, we ruin the song of all songs. Because we no longer see the great divine love story revealed through our bodies. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother, cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. Do you know what the fathers of the church tell us? about the joining of the two in one flesh, it's an image of what happened in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Because what happened in the womb of this young woman from Nazareth is the marriage 
of the divine and the human natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. And so the fathers of the church tell us that the womb of the virgin is God's bridal chamber where he consummates the union between heaven and earth. How do we summarize the whole Bible in five words? As I said yesterday, God wants to marry us. It's Christ who left his father in heaven. It's Christ who left the home of his mother on earth to give up his body for his bride so that we, the bride of Christ, might become one flesh with him. Where do we become one flesh with Christ, the bridegroom? Don't we call it Holy Communion? Didn't Christ say to his bride, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. That's like saying, unless the bride be in union with her bridegroom, she cannot conceive. Not only does God love us, not only does he want to marry us, First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in the baby carriage. Well, we didn't realize, though, in second grade, when we learned that little ditty, is that we are actually reciting some profound theology. In fact, we were entering into a great mystery. Our bodies as male and female, and in the call of the two to become one flesh, to be fruitful and multiply, our bodies tell this story. What story? The eternal love story. The eternal story that the father wants to have a bride for his son. And he wants this bride to conceive eternal life within her. And we know as Christians that this idea of, 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 of a bride conceiving eternal life, even more specifically being impregnated with eternal life, that this is not just poetry for us Christians. This is not just metaphor. It's not just wishful projection. No, 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 no. Do we not? Be, do you believe in Christmas? So do I. This means we believe this is not just poetry. There was a woman who walked this planet who gave her yes to God's marriage proposal with such fidelity. She was the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. She was the fulfillment of the hopes of Israel. This woman said yes, yes, with her whole being to the love of God. And the love of God descended upon her, and she, not poetically, not metaphorically, really and truly, in her womb, she conceived eternal life. Every woman's body shares in this dignity. Do you know what this means? Do you, do you know what this means? Let me just quote here from one of your own, Dennis Kinlaw. Reflecting deeply on Ephesians 5, listen to what he says. 
it would appear that Yahweh had distinct pedagogical purposes in mind. Pedagogical purposes. In other words, he wants to teach us. He wants to teach us who we are and who he is and what his eternal plan is for the human race. How? Dennis Kinlaw says, he has pedagogical, distinct pedagogical purposes in mind by making us sexually differentiated beings. The purpose of God affects our lives here at the most intimate level. The purposes, the design, the plan of God in making us male and female affects our lives at the most intimate level. Human sexuality, he concludes, is a far more sacred thing. Let me put this in context. If we are to take Ephesians 5 seriously, verses 31 to 32, where Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, proclaims that the meaning of human sexuality, the meaning of the sexual difference, this call to become one flesh, this call to be fruitful and multiply, it's all a great mystery that reveals, proclaims, and enables us to participate in the eternal love song of heaven, Christ's love for the church. If that's real, if that's not just poetry, but it has real theological gravitas, all scripture has gravitas, right? If this is real, then human sexuality is a far more sacred thing, Kinlaw says, for God's followers and a far more significant thing in God's eyes than most of us have ever dreamed. Which means what we do with our bodies here will either truly reflect Christ's love for the church and be prophetic for the whole world, or we can become false prophets. Our bodies, John Paul II says, reflecting on Ephesians 5, he says our bodies are prophetic. Why? What's a prophet? One who proclaims the truth of God. But wherever true prophets go out into the world, what also goes out into the world? False prophets. Can we take, can we dare to take a step into this mystery? Can we, can we dare to lift a corner of the veil to see how holy and sacred a man's body is and a woman's body is? Are you, are you ready to take another step? Yes? Okay, my dear sisters, as I said a few moments ago, every woman's body shares in the dignity of Mary's body. And Mary's body, what is Mary's body? What has Mary's body become? If we take our faith in Christmas seriously, we cannot conclude otherwise. Mary's body became heaven on earth. Because heaven is the dwelling place of the Most High God. And that's what Mary's body became when she said yes to that eternal wedding proposal. Her body became the dwelling place of the Most High God. Her body became the Ark of the New Covenant. What did the old Ark have in it? The Ark of the Old Covenant. It had the manna, and it had the stone tablets with the Word of God, yes? 
What does Mary's womb have in it if not bread come down from heaven? And the word, not inscribed in stone tablets, but the word made flesh. This is the ark of the new covenant. She is the holy of holies. She is the dwelling place of the Most High God. She is a sign for us, a real, true, vivid, actual sign of heaven on earth. And every woman, every woman, if you're going to read the Bible in its full context here, you have to conclude every woman shares in this dignity. Hallelujah, who said that? Who said that? Bless you. I need to hug you. Bless you. Woo, sister. You're feeling it. You're feeling it. Woo! You're feeling it, sister. Yes. Yes, yes. She's feeling it. That's the Holy Spirit whooping out of her right there. How's this going to happen? How's her body going to become this temple? The Holy Spirit's going to fall upon you. That's what's going to happen. That's the theology of a woman's body. Heaven on earth. That's what the church is. The woman is the sign of the church. What's the theology of a man's body? I have no idea. <laughs> we look to Christ. We look to Christ. What does he say? What does he say? What does he say to his bride from the cross? This is my given for, that's his marriage vow. Guys, do you know what our bodies tell us? Do you know what our bodies tell us? Theologically, we are called, if we have the privilege to be a husband and a father, we are called to enter behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. Our body tells that story. We are called to enter the gates of heaven. That's the theology of a man's body. Do we understand our sexuality this way? All questions of sexual morality from the biblical perspective come down to this question. One question. It's all the, the only question we need to ask. Does this attitude, does this behavior, does this sexual activity Make me a true prophet or a false one? Does this activity, does this attitude, does this behavior truly image Christ's love for the church or does it not? How does Christ love the church? I want to suggest as we read scripture, we can discover four distinctive qualities of Christ's love that kind of become for us the litmus test as to whether or not we're imaging Christ or something else. Christ loves his bride freely. They do not take my life from me, I lay it down freely. Christ loves his bride totally. There is no reservation. Scripture says he loves us to the end. There's no selfish calculation. It is a total unreserved gift of self. It's free, it's total or unreserved, it's faithful. Jesus says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And it's fruitful. I have come so that my bride might have life and have it to the full. This is the story our bodies tell. The call to free, total, faithful, fruitful love. Do you know what another name for that kind of love is?
until the 20th century, when the sexual revolution started infiltrating the Christian churches. In fact, until 1930, every Christian denomination across the board, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, all the reformers understood this. Sexual union is meant to be prophetic. It's meant to image Christ's love for the church. And the church very carefully guarded anything that would enter the marriage bed that would make the couples false prophets. Until the 20th century when the sexual revolution started infiltrating the churches, Christians across the board understood sexual intercourse is meant to be an expression and renewal of wedding vows. And wedding vows were expressed with certain variations in different denominations, but they all held these characteristics. They were a commitment until the 20th century when things started to change. The Christian wedding vow was a commitment to love freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. In fact, the minister would ask the couple, have you come here freely to give yourselves to one another without reservation? And they'd say, yes, we have. Then the minister would say, do you promise to be faithful to one another all the days of your life? Yes, we do. Do you promise to receive children lovingly from God? Yes, we do. Free, total, faithful, fruitful love. The wedding vows throughout Christian history until the sexual revolution started infiltrating the churches in the 20th century, the wedding vows were the commitment to love as Jesus loves. And then that night and throughout the marriage, when the husband and wife would become one flesh, they would be renewing their wedding vows, not with words, but with the language of their bodies. So marriage does not give us some license just to indulge our fallen sexual instincts. Marriage is a call, a high call to holiness. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church. And inevitably, when we hold the bar this high, which is the biblical bar, which is the Christian bar, which is the bar Christ establishes for us, when he says, love one another how? As I have loved you. If theology of the body teaches us anything, it's this. That biblical gospel call to love one another as Christ loves is stamped by God right in the prophetism of our bodies as man and female. And when we hold the bar where it belongs, we will all recognize we have fallen short of the glory, each and every one of us. And there's no room for wagging fingers at others because we're all at the foot of the cross looking up for mercy. Can we get the Caravaggio image up here? And I'll close with this. Great artist Caravaggio gave us this image of Christ, the risen Christ, guiding the hand of doubting Thomas into his open side. Are we able to bring that up? We're not able to bring it up? Oh, bummer. But it was up there earlier. I don't know if you saw it. I just want to leave you with this thought. Look it up. Google Caravaggio. I don't even know how to spell it. Caravaggio. Doubting Thomas. And Christ is guiding his hand into his open side. It's a beautiful image of where we must go with all of our sexual wounds, with all of our sexual brokenness, with all of the ways that we have fallen short of the glory. Whose wound is Jesus bearing on the cross? And fascinating, isn't it fascinating? On the other side of the resurrection, he still has the wounds, but now they shine with glory.
as we plug our wounds into his glorified wounds, we also pass over with him from glory to glory to glory. Lord, teach us who we really are. Reveal to us what it means that you've made us male and female. Give us the grace to enter ever more deeply into the great mystery and show us mercy where we have fallen. In Jesus' name we pray.